Well, we're in our final week of our God and Government sermon series, uh, not because we've exhausted the conversation, not by any means. There's much more that we could cover, but I hope that this brief uh, kind of biblical excursus on this topic has been helpful for you to think through how the Bible instructs for us to relate to civil government. And I'm aware that you may not even agree with all the things that I have been teaching on this over the course of the past uh, seven weeks. I hope that I've been able to convince you that they're not just my thoughts, that they're in the Word of God. But I hope even more than that, that you'd be able to engage with this discussion and see that the Word of God does, in fact, have much to say about how we ought to relate to our civil authorities. I know that because we haven't covered everything and some things will not even make the cut for today, I'm going to do my best to to get through our, our final text This upcoming week, Bradley and I will be putting together a variety of short videos that seek to summarize what has been stated over the course of this series and also address some of the things that didn't quite make the cut for a sermon but could be helpful for you anyway. So we're going to try to put those things out. You can reply to those on Facebook or even just reach out to us and even request a particular topic to be dealt with. We'd love to try to help you as much as we can with the things we've been covering here. Today we're going to be reading through 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 22. We're going to end our sermon series on the beginning of the monarchy of Israel. We're going to cover the topic of kings, monarchy in general, briefly touch on voting, and then deal with self-government before we close this morning. I'm going to go ahead and just pray that God will be with us as we dive into this text. There's a lot to cover here. And uh, then we're just going to go through the passage, and I'll put just a couple of those verses up clearly for everyone to be looking at at the same time. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we go to you as we always do before we open your word, as we seek to get understanding from these things that have been written. We ask for help to see what we ought to apply from these ancient yet true stories. Father, help us to discern what is right and what is wrong in these things. And help us to know what these teachings mean for us today. Father, I pray for myself, and I hope that this is true for every believing brother and sister here. We just want to do what you have commanded. Father, in your eyes, all things are black and white. They're either right or wrong. There is no situation where you say, I don't know. You know what is right always. But we don't. Much of what we view looks gray to us, and and we need help. We need clarity. And Father, we go to your word to seek for it. Lord, we are motivated in these days to have a greater, deeper understanding of how it is that we should relate to civil government. We ask for your help in this as we not only try to apply these things for our own sake, in our own households, and in our church, but even for our neighborhoods, the watching world around us. Lord, we want to be good witnesses. We want to operate in a way that is, that is appropriate and honoring and submissive to you. Above all, help us to do that this morning as we look into this passage of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Last week, I showed you that the original form of government that was given to Israel, beginning in the days of Moses, was a kind of theocracy. And I defined theocracy as a system of government in which God is openly recognized as the supreme ruling authority. Additionally, I argued that all governments are essentially theocracies 
because it is impossible for a nation to not have a God. All rulers must appeal to something as their highest authority, as their highest standard for what is good and just. Quick background on this text is that the year is around 1050 BC. Moses is long gone. And the Israelites have been occupying the promised land for about 400 years. But during this period of time, there is constant warring between Israel and the remaining Canaanite tribes in the promised land. Additionally, God's people continually resist his law. Israel does not yet have a king, but is being judged by the prophet Samuel and his sons whom he has appointed. And this takes us to the beginning of our passage today in 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel's sons were wicked judges. In fact, one of the things that we see throughout the Old Testament is is just the tragedy of godly people whose children end up being anything but. And unfortunately, as parents, we get very little commentary on what went down in that parenting. We only see the result. Samuel's yet another one of the names in the list of men who operated in a godly way, and yet his sons did not follow in that course. His sons were wicked. They took bribes and perverted justice. That's exactly what it says. They took bribes and they perverted justice. This is precisely what is condemned in Judges 17, or Deuteronomy 17 regarding judges. I want to read for you uh, from Deuteronomy 16, excuse me, uh, this passage. I showed this to you last week when we covered the topic of judges more completely. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20, reads like this. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. The exact same language. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, if you want a little bit more detailed view of how the Bible prescribes judges, uh, go, go go to last week's sermon, go check that out. You'll get a more full treatment of the idea of judges. But here we see that judging justly is a fundamental responsibility of civil government. If you don't have just judges, there is little hope for the rest of your nation. Our nation is thinking a lot about judges right now, isn't it? As President Trump just nominated Amy Coney Barrett to the next Supreme Court justice position, we're going to see a bunch of problems with our judicial system play out. Here are the two problems that I think we can identify in our current judicial system. Problem number one. Judges are not judging according to God's standard of justice. You ever notice how people who are hostile toward God are blind to their own religious motivations? I think we're going to see this play out over the next few weeks. Amy Coney Barrett is known for being a devout Catholic. You probably know that if you've been researching any of this at all. 
And the only thing that those on the Democratic side of the aisle can throw at her is that she's too devoted, devoted to her religion to be partial. Have you heard that argument? That's actually the argument that was leveled against her when she became uh, the, the circuit judge about three years ago. But the hypocrisy of that charge is almost laughable. We want you to judge according to our standards of justice and reason and not yours. That's what the claim is. But the problem was highlighted when then Judge Barrett said that she would recuse herself from any judgment in which she thought her faith might make her partial. In other words, if, if she thought that God wanted one thing, then she would recuse herself because that has no place in the court of law. That is a major, major problem. Judges are not judging according to God's standard of justice. No matter who they're appointed by, it's inappropriate. Second problem with our system of justice is they have been given way too much power, way too much authority. The Supreme Court of our nation can literally reverse the will of the people as codified in our system of law. We could propose a bill and pass a law with 100% approval from the citizens and our representatives, and the Supreme Court can overrule it, completely reverse it. I'll give you an example of this. There are lots of laws clear on the books, voted on, passed through the various state constitutional processes. There's one right now from North Carolina. This, this constitutional amendment was, was put in place in North Carolina back in 1868. It was reconfirmed again in the 70s, and it stands today. This is in the written law of North Carolina Constitution. It says this, the following classes of persons shall be disqualified for office. First, all persons who shall deny the being of Almighty God. That's, that still stands today. That's literally in the language. Technically, it is still there now. How then is it possible for an atheist to occupy any government office in North Carolina? Because a ruling court has decreed that that law is invalid. It doesn't matter that's what the people wanted. It doesn't matter that's what God's law would demand. The judges have decreed. Judges in our land have assumed the authority to undo the law. This is why abortion is considered legal. Because in 1973, seven out of nine Supreme Court justices, more than half of which were appointed by Republicans, for the record, voted that it is appropriate for a woman to murder her child for any reason that she has. They appealed to the 14th Amendment. Well, see, we may not intervene in a woman's medical choice. The person presiding over that was a Republican, claimed to be a believer, they unilaterally decreed that a mother may murder a baby. Ecclesiastes 3.16 says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Solomon is writing the book of Ecclesiastes is saying that we're going to find wickedness at every level. That's what we see when we look at our system of judgment. You and I might find it satisfying to see the liberal leaders of our country lose their minds over this appointment in the next couple of weeks. But we have got to keep things in perspective. Our judicial system will remain broken until judges acknowledge God and his law as the only right standard of justice. A broken and corrupt system of justice is cause for great concern. And that's exactly what we see in our text today. Today. 
The people are concerned that after Samuel, who's a good judge, dies, he's old, that bad judges are going to be in place. And that's a problem. They know it. They're concerned enough to bring delegates from all around the tribes of Israel together. And that's what it says in 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 5. Let's read this together. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Note the people here, they had peace with Samuel. Listen, Samuel, our problem is not you. It's your sons. You're going to die. And then they're going to take over. They knew that his sons would be worse. So they sent representative delegates, elders of each tribe, to go to meet with Samuel. They proposed the adoption of an entirely new form of national government, one that is like the other nations around them. If you have that, you look at the Bible in front of you there. They wanted to do this like the other nations. They all have kings. We want a king like that. Evidently, the judges in Israel at this time had no term limits, kind of like our Supreme Court today. Nor could the people just vote out these judges. Otherwise, they would have just done that. So they went to Samuel with a different plan in mind. Rather than to say, get rid of those guys and get just judges, they go, forget this. We want a king. The fear of bad judges prompts the people to cry out for a monarchy, a centralized form of government. Now, just a reminder here again. There were no kings of Israel in this day. There was no singular, centralized ruling authority in Israel. During this period of Israelite history, this would be called the period of the judges. When the people needed deliverance, they would cry out to God who would raise up a deliverer. Some deliverers operated as military commanders, like Gideon. Some as advisors, like Deborah. Some were warrior heroes, like Samson or Jephthah. Samuel was a prophet. None of them were kings. All were provided directly by God when they were needed. I want you to see what the people of Israel are doing here in this exact passage. They are voting away the right to vote. They are voting away the right to vote. They are unanimously coming before Samuel and saying, listen, you're the one who has the direct line to God. You're the one who's speaking on behalf of what God wants. And God's the one who has appointed our deliverers in the past. Well, then have God appoint a final monarchy, a line of deliverers, a king, not just a singular one-time guy, but a lineage. I've been asked recently about voting in America. A handful of different people have asked this question to me recently. Are we required by God to vote I think it is true that we do see things that look like voting in the New Testament church government. Okay? Second Corinthians, uh, there's an acknowledgement of certain decisions by the majority. There's other implications regarding church discipline as well. But I don't think that we're required to vote. There may be political strategy at play here. There may be a general truism that we should operate in the system of government that we have, and it's probably generally a good thing to do. But one of the reasons that we don't get a clear answer on that particular question is that in this scripture, it shows that they did away with the right to vote. So that wasn't even an option for the people over the course of much of Israelite history. But the nations around them did have kings, and they wanted to be like the other nations. In fact, you see that as one of the primary things that they say. We want a king like they have a king. 
All those, all those nations that keep taking us over and oppressing us and, and stealing our property and hurting our people, all those nations, they all have kings. Look how strong they are. We want what they have. Christians, be warned. We should not look like the world. The desire to be like the world is a terrible desire. The way that we run our household, our churches, even our businesses should not be overly influenced by what we observe in the world. And how does Samuel respond to their request? I'm going to put this one up because this is, this is so critical for us. But the, king, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This request by the Israelites was a rejection of God. It was not merely motivated by a desire to have better organization, administration. This is when the people of Israel collectively said, we would rather have a man than God. We would rather have a creature than the creator. And the Jewish people continue in this course all the way up in history until the days of Jesus and until the days when the Jewish people will be no more. You remember John 19? This is when, when Jesus is standing before the people Pilate is getting ready to, to figure out what to do in the situation. He doesn't see any fault in Jesus. He's trying to get Jesus off the hook. What do the people say? They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. The Israelites have been doing this ever since. There is a prior articulation of this exact same sin in the book of Judges prior to this time. You may remember the story of Gideon. Gideon. He was selected by God to lead a micro army of 300 men to drive out the hordes of Midianite invaders who had come into Israel. After God supernaturally won that battle, not Gideon, God supernaturally won that battle, the people wrongly gave credit for the victory to Gideon. That's what they did. And this is what it said that they did next. I'm going to read this to you from Judges chapter 8. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Look what Gideon says. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon knew that it was not he who won the battle. And it was neither him nor his sons who were the rightful rulers of Israel, but God. And while in Gideon's day, the people asked him to be their king, here in Samuel's time, they're asking God to provide a king. The rejection is still the same. The people want a king. And what is it that they want a king to do for them? This is, this, is, this is helpful for us to see because you and I, people in our day all around the world are crying out for the same kind of thing from our civil authorities. 
Israel isn't coming up with something unique, something weird, like, man, that's, that's odd that they would ask for that. No, all of this makes sense. This is exactly how people cry out. What is it that the people wanted? They wanted a king to judge them and to win battles. That's what they wanted. In fact, it'll be articulated later in our first Samuel passage. We're going to get to the point where it makes it clear. We want him to go out to battle for us, to judge us and go out for battle. That's what we want. The New Testament rearticulates this as punish what is evil and protect what is good. These are the fundamental responsibilities of a civil ruler. I've been hammering this since the very first day of this sermon series. This is God's design for civil authorities. Punish what is evil, protect what is good. That's the design. 1 Samuel 9.17, this is the chapter after our passage today. God is about to give the people a king, and it's going to be King Saul. And Samuel goes to King Saul to tell him, okay? And when God is alerting Samuel, this is the king. This, this guy here, Saul, he's the one who I've anointed to be the king of Israel. But look, look at what God says about Saul in 1 Samuel 9.17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. The king here is to be a restrainer of the wickedness of the people. When a king commits himself to punish evil, he prevents more evil from happening. You know, Christians love grace. We love mercy, and we should. We should overflow with grace and mercy. But in our day, there's lots of Christians who think, well, that means no justice ever needs to be meted out. No capital punishment, no real, real any kind of punishment for crimes at all. That's the most loving way. That's the way that God would want. No, first, that is false. That is not the most loving way. Sometimes the most loving way is for us to put to death the murderer that no one else commits murder. It is a restraint on wickedness of people when a king punishes the things that God has determined are wicked. He prevents that evil by the punishment. But you and I both know that the king may never determine what is evil. This is another critical point. I've hammered this so much over this series. The king may never determine what is evil, but he must align with what God has said. This is what was so, so incredible about this last week's incident in Moscow, Idaho. This is what highlighted the injustice of that incident. These Christians brilliantly chose that their method of protest would be worship. There is no way that you could call the worship of the one true God evil and worthy of punishment. No way you can do that. What a per They could have just cried out against the government, and there could be maybe questions. But it is never evil for Christians to worship their God. Brilliant plan. They should never have been punished for doing such a righteous thing. Additionally, a critical distinction here needs to be made between crimes and sins. And you've got to get this category distinction in your mind. There are things that God considers sin that should not be criminalized. Let's think about the Ten Commandments, for example. What's the Tenth Commandment? You shall not covet. You shall not covet. What was the criminal penalty for coveting in the Old Testament? Nothing. There is no penalty. Why? Well, for one reason, you can't prove it. 
You need two or three witnesses for every crime. Deuteronomy 19 says this, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And for the record, before you try to couch that into the Old Testament, Paul repeats his exact same thing in 2 Corinthians 13. It says every charge must be established by two or three witnesses. That's, that continues for our day. You can't prove it, can't criminalize it. You can't punish it. How about adultery? Was adultery punishable by death? Yes. But Jesus said that there's adultery in a man's heart when he lusts after a woman. Is lust a criminal activity? No. You can't punish lust. You see, you can't, you can't punish hatred in your heart. God calls those things out because he sees the heart of a man. He knows what is sin, but what cannot be criminalized. A king should appoint judges. This is a, this is a part of his, his punishing what is evil and protecting what is good. A king should have some play in appointment of judges or at least to ensure that judges rule justly. A measure of accountability. The Israelites saw that the establishing of a king was a solution to wicked judges. That's what they're saying. We need a king. Why? So that he can make sure that we will have justice. That's why somebody needs to keep even judges accountable. 2 Samuel 23, 3-4 says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. King is to establish and uphold justice according to the word of God. And what else did they want? They wanted to win our battles for us, warfare. Protect us from these invaders. Israel had not situated itself to be a violent external oppressor. They were the ones receiving all the oppression from those around them. This is a grand scale version of punish what is evil and protect what is good. For a king to, with the sword given by God, to defend his people in a just war. Punish what is evil, protect what is good. This is what the people wanted. This is what a king was supposed to do, any kind of civil ruler. But one more question that might be helpful to acknowledge. Are civil leaders authorized to do anything other than punish what is evil and protect what is good? Are they authorized to do anything other than that? The answer is yes. But they may not use the sword for it. That's what Romans 13 and 2 Peter 2 says. He's given the sword for punishing what is evil, protecting what is good. That's what he's given the sword for. He may not use it in anywhere else. An example of a place where he may be authorized to do something outside of those can be found in Ecclesiastes 5.9. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. A king may preserve the general welfare of the people. There are lots of things that could fall into this category. When there is a surplus of material resources in a nation, the wise king should not line his own pockets, make himself wealthy, nor should he squander it on frivolous and superfluous projects. He should invest it in the prosperity of his nation. That's what a good king does. All over the Old Testament, we see that when God blesses a king, blesses a nation, they prosper both militarily and economically. That's what we see. But he may not use the sword for such things. This is why when we are evaluating a president's success today, it is biblically appropriate for us to look at the state of the economy under that president. I've heard Christians go, why should we care about money? The Bible tells us that blessings come 
from a nation prospering when the king does what God commands for him to do. Of course that should be judged. No, it's not the highest value, but yes, it should be measured as a good rule. This is what a king should do for his people. But this kind of ruling comes at a cost. Samuel is instructed by God here to explain to the people the irreversible consequences of establishing a monarchy in Israel. And this is what brings us to the next next part. Follow me into verses 10 through 18. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Here's the list. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So the high cost of a monarchy can be broken into three categories. Military, administration, and material. He's going to demand these things of you. This is the price tag on a national monarchy. And for the record, this is what it will cost any nation, even today, who wants to have a centralized government. That's what it will cost. And the tone of this passage is unmistakable. Samuel has clearly been commanded by God to warn his people by saying this. That was the word used. It would warn the people of what will happen if I give them a king. And look what they say. Verses 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice. Make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So God gives them a king. That's the king will be Saul. And everything that Samuel warned would happen does. All of it. This brings up a really important question for us. What about this request was wrong? There's no question that this request was sinful. That's made very clear. God says as much to Samuel. They're even warned against making this decision. But are we to take this passage as a prohibition on monarchy, as a form of government? I don't think so. I'll give you four reasons. First, the law... 400 years before this, specifically approved of the establishing of a king. Deuteronomy 17, 15 says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. You may do it. Second reason, it was foretold 
that they would do so long before the days of Deuteronomy, hundreds of years before the days of Deuteronomy. When God renames Jacob Israel, this is what he says to him in Genesis 35. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Numbers 24, 7. Water shall flow from his buckets. This is Israel. And his seed shall be in many waters. His king, Israel's king, shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. Third reason, God permits it and goes on to bless it. They end up with Saul and then David and it was expressly, if it was expressly sinful for the people to have a king, I don't think that God would have given them one. And and I know the argument. People might say, well, doesn't God, like even in Romans 1, give people up to a debased mind? Doesn't Jesus even say that during the days of Moses, God God accommodated their, their sinful desire for divorce by letting them divorce even though it wasn't originally in the plan? We can't find anywhere in sacred scripture where God provides something for his people collectively through a prophet by supernatural occurrences and then goes on to bless the people through that provision without it being genuinely permissible. We don't see that about divorce. We don't see that about the turning over to a debased mind in Romans 1. But God certainly provides this for his people. Fourth, God says that their rejection of him was not merely their request for a king but that this was just the latest instance of Israel's continuous rejection of God and his laws. I want you to look back at 1 Samuel 8, the the passage we were in, verses 7 through 8. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. How? How have they rejected him from being king over them? according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So the rejection is not merely in asking for a king, but in the perpetual repudiation of God as their king over the centuries. Old Testament commentator Robert Bergen says it this way, The people's demand for an earthly king represented the political manifestation of a spiritual problem. And this is where we should take warning, brothers and sisters in Christ. You could vote for a president in a way that is a rejection of Jesus as your king. You could seek the gain of your political party in a way that is a rejection of King Jesus. We cannot put our hopes in earthly government. Our hopes are not in the Constitution, are not in the United States of America and her leaders, are not in any one of the earth. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Nobody should be so unruffled by this year's events as we can be. When you grab a king from the people, he will be like the people. Just as the people have rebelled against God, so will the king. If this request is an act of rejection of God, what do they think they're going to get? In fact, the only one that they can point to and say, this is a godly man is saying, this is a bad idea. 
they're going to get one of their own. They're going to get one that represents who they are. And that's exactly what we're going to find to be the case with Saul. There's going to be a little bit of good. There's going to be a little bit of appropriate behavior. There's going to be a few years of relative peace. And even after Saul eventually goes over the deep end and God turns his back on him, says no more, removes the spirit of God from him, invalidates him. We will see years go by where Saul still generally does some good things for his people. Praise be to God for his common grace. But the king will be just like the people. Politics is downstream from culture. Kings are powerless without people. You know, we ask questions all the time. and People people talk about Hitler all the time. You throw Hitler around left and right. How many people did Hitler kill? Outside of World War I, maybe nobody. People obeyed him and killed other people. You tracking what I'm saying? The power of a king is the obedience of the people. The problem with every form of civil government is sin. Sin, both in the heart of the king and the heart of the citizen. The problem in our government today is not primarily in the leadership of our governors. It's in us. We put them in power. We put them in authority. We established them in their positions. We've approved of their leadership in many ways over the course of the centuries. The problem is in us. The problem is in the people, in the sin in our heart. Guys, this is the starting point of the gospel for us. God made mankind upright, but we have chosen many schemes. As that all of us have sinned against God. All of us have rebelled against him in our hearts. If you're a believer, you know this. If you don't know this, you can't be a believer. You have to know and see that you need forgiveness for those sins in order to even be saved. And to see that Jesus is the righteous one, perfect king, came, lived perfectly, died, that only through belief in him can we have eternal life. I showed you this slide at the very beginning of this series. This is one of the first slides I think I showed you. This is the spheres of government that God has instituted, ordained by God. We have the state, the church, and the family. These are the three spheres that government can be found. But there's a fourth sphere of government, one that is so fundamental that it often doesn't even show up on a chart like this because it's so implied, so assumed that we don't mention it. And that is self-government. That is that you are to govern yourself. This is why all the commands of the Bible stand as they are. That you are to repent of your sins. You are to turn in faith to Jesus. As a believer, you are to, to, to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That you are to submit yourself to King Jesus. Self-government. All spheres of government hang on self-government, all of them, because these spheres aren't just ambiguous concepts that float around in the ether. They're comprised of individual people who make decisions that will affect them and others every day. Every king, in order to make a right or a wrong law, every king, in order to do a good thing or a bad thing, first has to do that thing in his own heart. Which sphere of authority, though, has the broadest jurisdiction? This is a helpful question. Which of these three spheres has the broadest jurisdiction? That means the least limits. If you were to write out a list, 
of authorized things that these spheres are allowed to demand of those under them, which list would be the longest? Which is authorized to make demands in the greatest number of life categories? Think about that for a second. We talked about regional jurisdiction. The state has the broadest regional jurisdiction. There are hundreds of churches and millions of families under a state, perhaps. A church has, a, has another regional jurisdiction. There may be dozens or even hundreds of families inside of a church. So the family has the smallest regional jurisdiction. It's you and your home. But which one has the most exhaustive demands and authorization? The answer is unquestionably the family, the home. Can your government tell you lights out at nine? Can they tell you sit up straight? Can they tell you to give your sister a hug? Finish your vegetables? Finish the open box of cereal before you open a new one? Can your church demand that you finish your chores before dinner? Keep your feet off the coffee table? Tuck your shirt in? That you give your Aunt Becky a kiss? No, but Dad and Mom can. Why? Because the home is the training ground for self-government. The home is where it's first established how a person ought to live in relationship with all other people that exist. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. This is the Ten Commandments. You guys know the Ten Commandments. It's broken down into two tables. Two tables of the law. The first is our relationship with God, how we are to deal with him. The second is our relationship with people, how we deal with others. What is the first law given in relationship with others? Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is fundamental. You know, I, I almost, I was getting ready to prepare a God and government slash education to do that sermon as part eight. And if we keep filling up the seats, maybe we'll have to thin the herd and do that in the future. But it is fundamental that we see the household is establishing self-government. You're teaching your kids. You're teaching them how to govern themselves, how to submit to God, primarily to know their relationship between him and them. That even if there was no government around you, if you landed on the moon and got stranded there or something, or Mars, like the movie The Martian, you see the movie, you get stranded out there, you're out there for, for, for years, you have no other government over you at all. How should you live? Under self-government between you and God. That you please and honor him in everything that you do. You know, as as a former Marine, people ask me all the time about sending their sons off to the military. They say, like, man, I got an undisciplined son. I need to send him off to the Marines. I need to send him off to the Army. Wouldn't that give them discipline? Well, it might give them discipline, but it won't give them self-discipline. Have you ever met somebody who comes out of the military life like that? And all of a sudden, just like all the discipline seems gone. Like, how did that happen? Because all that discipline was external. That's why it was never internally grabbed. There's a huge distinction between discipline and self-discipline. Anyone can make you wake up at four. You bang on a trash can hard enough and flip the lights on and off, you're waking up. Anyone can make you run a couple miles early morning. Anyone can make you eat healthy. Anyone can make you follow certain rules. But what happens when there's no one there to make you? That's self-discipline. All government relies upon, hinges upon, Self-government. We are responsible as citizens of heaven 
before God to see ourselves first and foremost personally responsible for what he demands. Brothers and sisters, your personal holiness matters. In fact, it is your highest priority. There is no higher priority that exists in your life than you to become personally holy. That's it, the highest priority. No man or woman before God can say, God, I'm not going to work on my life. I'm just gonna try to help others work on theirs. No. First commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. That's the first and foremost. That's what you do. That's your highest priority. And it's the way you're gonna win this battle. We are responsible as believers to live rightly under God. In essence, this has been the purpose of this entire series, to help you honor God in the way you relate to civil authorities. That's your highest priority. We are responsible to leverage whatever blessed freedoms that we have been granted for kingdom building. We should invest in our freedom like a commodity. Christians throughout history could only have dreamed of the kinds of freedoms that we enjoy every day. What are you going to do with it? Squander it? Take it for granted? Forfeit it? Our earthly rulers are not our saviors. They're not. No king of Israel. Purely human, sinful, could possibly be our savior. That job is taken. We've been given one. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You know, we can get doom and gloom often looking around at the culture around us, but I cannot believe that we get the privilege of being the Christians in America who get to live through 2020. We get that. We get to live through this. It is awesome that we get to be here for this. As more and more people lose their faith in government leaders, as more and more people grow weary of the fear of death, as more and more people see the utter and inevitable folly of a worldview that denies God, we are given the charge to proclaim the gospel. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. There is no salvation in any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's the name of Christ Jesus. The world is looking for stable people who are not shaken by this madness. People who, without shivering, uncompromisingly go, nope, the word of God says. Nope. That's what he says. That's not true because he says this. That's false because he said. I don't care what your policy is. God says this. It's all there is. And we say it state with stability and, and we protest with worship, not like the world. We go to our King Jesus for all the provisional needs that we have. Brothers and sisters, as we conclude this series right now, there are so many things we need to think through how we're supposed to manage in our lives, Okay right now, but there are some things that are unquestionably true for us, that we must corporately and openly acknowledge that Jesus is our king, and all of our submission to government must be because we see him as our greatest king, and our attitude and all the things that come down to be right because we are under his authority. It's my hope that after the election times that we wake up peacefully, 
we know that no matter what happens, our God is in control. And the crazier it gets, the more likely people will be looking for salvation apart from man. Why would we want to live in any other day? Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We do not deserve one iota of the blessings that we have received, either personally in our lives or, or just nationally. No people have, have, have been able to enjoy the freedoms that we have. No people. It is amazing what we get. Father, help us to not squander it. Help us to not rebuke it. Help us to not reject it or forfeit it so quickly. Help us to, for as long as we have it, Lord, for as long as we have these freedoms to leverage every good thing for the building up of the kingdom, then we stand before you in heaven someday and in the company of the saints, of the cloud of witnesses that we get to worship with face to face. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to say that we invested all of this blessing into something for eternal good. Lord, help us be the kind of believers who think like that. Help us be the kind of believers who, who pick our eyes up off of the things of this world and, and, and put them firmly on Jesus, seated at the right hand, the Father who is in heaven. Lord, it's a, it's a difficult task, and it's going to require us turning off our phones. It's going to require us logging off of Facebook. It's going to require us uh, not going to unreliable sources of information as though they are your word, but picking up our Bibles, trusting in you, seeing your big picture plan as much as we can, and aching to be a part of things that have eternal value. We love you, Lord. Help us. Help us to, to surrender ourselves all over again to you. Help us to repent in the areas that we have looked to human rulers as messiahs when we already have one. Lord, help us to see those things rightly, and we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.